I hope that bumper video is dramatic enough for you. <laughs> it's hard to create a visual that uh, conveys the significance of what we're trying to talk about. Um, but we're, we're doing this this year. We're working our way through the whole Bible kind of in a, uh, an overview of the Bible. Uh, and I've titled the whole series, The Great Rescue, because I believe that's what the Bible is all about. It's about God finding us in our mess and rescuing us. And you may not realize this, you may not understand this, but you live in a burning building. And if God doesn't get you out of it, you are toast. That's just the reality of our existence. And I'm trying to flesh it out this year as we go piece by piece through the story and the different types of books that are found in the Bible. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have at least a starting knowledge of what to make of the Bible, which is actually a collection of 66 books. It's not one book. Um, but anyway, I've titled uh, this uh, The Great Rescue, and uh, we're continuing in the series today. We've already covered a, a couple of things. We've been starting out at the very beginning in Genesis, and uh, we were looking uh, at how God created everything. And uh, last week, we were looking at how God created humankind. And something that stands out in all of this that we are being told about God creating uh, is the uh, great design and attention to detail that God put into it and the purpose, purposefulness of God in creating everything. Everything is designed perfectly with a purpose and the great purpose of the human race is that we were created uniquely in all creation in the image and likeness of God. We were created to represent in creation the essence and the presence of God. And uh, that defines our reason for existing. Obviously, that's, that's been mangled by something we call sin. Uh, but we're, we're still kind of going through the opening steps. And there's a lot to cover in the book of Genesis that kind of lays the foundation for the whole rest of God's rescue story. Uh, but we start with that, right, this good creation. We start with the purpose of humankind. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, what happened, the turn from God. Uh, and we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I do something today that I don't normally do. We're going to skip some verses because I want to highlight uh, a specific uh, theme that we're looking at today. Um, but... Let me ask you, have you ever walked away from something and later come to regret it? I can tell you a, a moment like that in our life. Uh, shortly after Ellie and I were married, before we had kids, so uh, a year or two into our marriage, um, we were living in Waco. I was working at the Department of Human Services. I was interviewing, I was a caseworker. I interviewed people for food stamps and Medicaid. And I did not enjoy my job. I really wanted to do art. So I had uh, tried to f find some work doing freelance artwork and I managed to find a publisher that uh, did some freelance projects with me and I illustrated a couple of things in a couple of magazine articles and uh, Nothing we could live off of, obviously, but uh, I did a little bit of that, and I was thinking, you know, I would really like to just be a freelance artist, so, uh, but there's just not enough work 
in Waco, but surely in a big city like Dallas, there would be a lot more opportunity. So I convinced my wife, and she was a lot easier to convince back then. Uh, I convinced my wife that we should just move to Dallas, and uh, I'd find all this freelance artwork, and I'd be able to move into what I wanted to do. So uh, I asked for a transfer to uh, the Department of Human Services in Dallas, and we moved to Dallas. We didn't even make it a year in Dallas. Uh, and in all that time, I've found zero freelance opportunities. What we did find is that living in Dallas is more expensive than living in Waco. Uh, and uh, we were there, like I said, less than a year when Ellie uh, became pregnant. And we were already like this. We were, I mean, we were up to here. So we moved back to Waco. And that's where both Beth and Caleb were born. Uh, so I, it was an, an example in my own life when I left something behind thinking I'd find something better and found out that what I had before was better. That's kind of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So we're in chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. And Yahweh God planted a garden in the Eden, in the east, and he placed there the human he had formed. And Yahweh God made to sprout out of the ground every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, and the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We notice, uh, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, right? God created everything, and as he's creating, he stops and evaluates and says it's good, and he creates and he stops and evaluates, says it's good. When he finally finishes with the, the crowning achievement in creation, which is the creation of humankind, the only being in all creation that he fashioned in his own image and likeness, then he surveys the whole of creation and says it is very good. And the question we arrive at today when we read that is, uh, what happened? Because as we look around the world today, it is not very good through and through. There are wars and, and uh, all kinds of things happening and, and people being put in prison and killed in prison and all these things we are constantly hearing on the news that are not good. And forget about the world out there. I can look inside my own heart and say, it's just not good. I am often lazy and selfish and greedy and cruel. Why? Even when I don't want to be and when I try not to be, I can't seem to break it. Why is, the, is everything broken? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that God didn't make the world broken. It was good. And we've talked about creation narratives, and the dominant creation narrative in our society today is that our existence is accidental. That we don't know why, a whole bunch of time ago, from nothing, all of a sudden, everything exploded into existence. Don't say it was God. We don't know why it happened, but boom, all of a sudden, there was nothing there, and all of a sudden, it was all there. And it just started expanding. And in one little fraction of a, a minuscule speck in that expanding universe, there happened to be a planet where, who knows why, but life just exploded 
and covered the planet, all kinds of life, plant, animal. Nowhere else in the universe is there any of this, but it just happened to happen because if you give enough time, things just randomly happen and eventually you end up with human beings. That is the story we are told today, and that is the story most people believe today, that our existence is not planned, that it is not designed, that it is not purposeful, but that we are an accident. Which, really, if you believe that, means your life has no meaning at all. And life is a brief interruption that will soon be over. And soon the universe will grow cold and there will be nothing left of life. That's the story we're told. Now, the creation narrative we find in the Bible is very different. There's design and purpose and intentionality to it all. So where did the very good universe God created become what we see today? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. What went wrong? And uh, to the question, why is there evil in the world? The first answer we get in the Bible is there's evil in the world because God created a world where evil could happen. And we just read about it. God places the human in this garden and places in it all kinds of trees, makes full provision for everything the human's going to need to live and thrive. But he places two very special trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, as we continue reading the story, it will become evident that these two choices are mutually exclusive. Humans can choose one or the other, but not both. And with this is introduced into creation the option to sin. The option for sin to enter into creation. And you might say, well, why would God do something like that? Why didn't he just make us where all we want to do is good? Where we have nothing but good to do. And what you're describing is basically a mechanical universe, a universe in which God kind of winds us up like wind-up toys, and we go through the prescribed actions that we are supposed to go through. We have no choice. We have no free will. We simply go through and uh, voice the prescribed words God would have us speak, like a doll you pull the cord on, and it says the phrases you've programmed into it. Apparently, God thought it was better to create a universe with a being in his image and likeness with the potential to be in communion with him and govern creation with him or the potential to reject that and choose something other and introduce what we would call sin into this creation. And God seemed to think it was better to create a being with whom he could have a genuine relationship than create anything else. We might argue with him about that, but I kind of personally am glad that he made me capable of choosing to love him rather than having to love him. One more question I want to enter into, and this is a touchy subject. There have been wars fought within the Christian faith over this. So please hear me. Uh, with an open mind. But the big question we get to when we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis is, should we read this literally or as a metaphor? 
Should we understand these opening chapters of Genesis to be literal accounts much like that we find in chapters 20, 12 through 50, where we get into the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph? Uh, I will point out that the narrative style in the first 11 chapters is what we would call creation narrative storytelling. And that what we have in terms of a narrative style in chapters 12 through 50 is the account of family history. Uh, we have about a couple of hundred years of story told in the final chapters, and we have who knows how many thousands of years told in the first 11 chapters. So it, it's a much broader thing, and uh, we get into uh, archetypal uh, issues and things, and we've already looked at the creation story, how it's arranged thematically, even though the use of days as a, as a convention and the, uh, the ending with a seventh day of rest kind of creates a whole week as a way to arrange the information, we find that the arrangement in the days is thematic. The first three days are God separating out uh, different spaces, and then the second three days correspond exactly to each of those where God fills each of those three spaces. Uh, and and uh, the point being repeated over and over is the design, everything according to its kind, everything following certain patterns, and, and creation is not this chaotic happenstance. It's a very fine-tuned thing that God has fashioned with great care. But I would say that the, the important thing to get from Genesis 1 is not how many hours it took God to do this. It's the design, the attention to detail, and the purposefulness with which God created everything. Who cares how long it took? Similarly, um, this passage we're looking at today is described using very archetypal language. What do I mean by that? We don't even have any personal names. The three participants are the woman, it's never Eve, the man, and the serpent. Those are the only participants. And some people look at this and say, uh, are we talking about individuals or are these kind of representative of the first humans in general? And what com complicates the matter even more is that the name Adam itself means human. When we read in chapter 1, verse 26, let us create man in our image and likeness, the word there is Adam. Let us create Adam in our image and likeness, male and female. So even the name Adam doesn't necessarily refer to an individual. It can simply be a way of referring to humans in general. What am I trying to say with all, with all of this? Well, what I would suggest to you is that the most important question you want to ask yourself as you're understanding what God is saying in these opening chapters of Genesis is not whether we're talking about literal events of literal people or whether we're talking about God trying to convey to us what happened and using these stories to give us the information we need to know. So for me, I'm, I'm not really terribly bent out of shape whether the serpent, Adam, and Eve are three, little in, uh, three literal individuals and the two trees are two literal trees and that's exactly uh, the way it happened. And some people say, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I absolutely agree. My question is, what is it that God has said? 
I give God final word and I, I, I believe what God says, but I'm, I struggle sometimes to really make out and understand clearly what he's trying to say. So did God intend for us to read these as uh, scientific history? Or was it a creation narrative meant to give us the information we needed? When it says God's walking in the garden, is he literally walking in the garden? Or is that a way to convey to us the idea that God made his presence known and palpable? And using anthropomorphic language to help us understand the concept. Um, I think it really doesn't make a difference where, which of those two options you go with because you're going to come out at the end of it with the same thing. And I would say to those who insist on it being literal uh, and, you know, that, that God would never use metaphor to convey teaching, I would remind you that when God became a man, one of his favorite ways of teaching was to use parables. So God has the habit of communicating his truth to us both through story and through history. And God uses both. So uh, let's see what we are being told and uh, let's leave the argument of whether this is a literal couple or uh, whether we're just representing uh, the story of the first humans and where things went wrong. Hopefully we'll come out on the same place at the end of it. Okay, so let's go back to the story. Verse 15, chapter 2. And Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat from every tree in the garden, but you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it you will surely die. So God places the first man uh, in the garden and gives him instructions to work it and keep it. Sometimes we think work is a consequence of evil entering the world. Oftentimes we, we complain about work. It's very popular to gripe about your job and about the hours you have to keep and having to go to work and all this. But you know what? Work is not a punishment. Work existed before sin was a problem in creation. God himself had the work of creating and he gave to the first humans work to do. The problem with work is that with the introduction of sin, it becomes oftentimes futile and burdensome. But work in and of itself is not a bad thing. Jesus did a lot of work and he said, my father's working till now and so am I. So uh, don't, don't uh, devalue work. Work is a good thing. But he gave uh, the first humans the responsibility of working the garden and keeping it, guarding it. We are meant to be the caretakers of, the, of creation. And to Christians uh, who think that doesn't matter, I would point you to the Bible. We are responsible for how we manage this creation. And if we abuse it and mistreat it, uh, I think God holds us accountable for that. And as Christians, that's a message we need to convey. Uh, but uh, they, he gives them this uh, work to, to work it and to keep it and uh, tells them they can eat any tree they want, anything, all the trees. There are no prohibitions. Now, God has issued several commands, and we talked about it last week in verse 26 of chapter 1. Um, God tells the humans to uh, multiply 
and to uh, produce many offspring, to fill the earth, and he commands them to subdue the earth and to govern it, to rule it. So God has already issued a bunch of commands to humans, but this is the first prohibition God gives them. You may not eat from one tree. To uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, the day you eat from it, you will surely die. I want to notice, uh, I want to point out something here. The fact that these <coughs> two options, life or knowledge of good and evil, are, are presented in the garden in this way tells me that immortality was not the way God made humans. Immortality was only potential. But that's not the way we were originally designed. We had the potential to uh, attain to it represented by the tree of life, but that was never actualized. So humans have never been immortal. That becomes a promise God makes for the future. Uh, because once humans chose to uh, embrace the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they gave up the option to take from the tree of life. Then we get to another very sticky point. Now, this is a passage I have taught on often. Those of you who have heard me teach on this know what I think about it. Those of you who have never heard me teach on it might be surprised by my thoughts on this. Uh, just keep an open mind. Um, now, the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal of the field that Yahweh God had made. A few questions here about the serpent. First of all, what what did serpents represent in the world Moses was writing in? Uh, serpents were symbols of both wisdom and death. They were seen both positively and negatively. They were seen as very dangerous. A serpent could bite you and kill you. But they also thought of them in certain contexts as protecting. And for example, for Egyptians, the Pharaoh's crown had the, the ureus, uh, the stylized serpent, which represented a protecting serpent uh, on the crown of the Pharaoh. Uh, and there's kind of that idea in this story. The serpent uh, is connected with the whole, both the idea of acquiring wisdom, but also with the danger of death. Now, uh, the next question we have is, is the serpent Satan? You might be surprised to hear that there are many scholars who insist, no, the serpent is not Satan. They argue that the, the Jews themselves never made that connection. They simply saw the serpent as the serpent, whoever that happens to be. Uh, but uh, Christians have consistently identified the serpent as Satan, and I think we have good biblical reason for doing that. In Revelation 12, 9, and then again in 22, uh, one of the big symbolic creatures in Revelation is the dragon, and we are uh, in the book of Revelation itself, we are told who this dragon represents. He is that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. I think that ancient serpent is a clear reference to Genesis 3. So I think we have legitimate cause as Christians, uh, understanding the totality of the Word of God, uh, to interpret that this serpent is a representation in this story of Satan. So please, uh, those of you who, who insist on reading this literally, don't argue about things the Bible did not see fit to talk about. Did animals talk back then? 
I have no reason to believe they did. We're never told that they did. Uh, we're just told that the serpent is here conversing. Uh, so don't make more of it than is there. Don't create this whole Narnia world. Um, anyway, the big question to me, the one that I think, I hope you've wrestled with, I have wrestled with it for years. What is the serpent doing in the garden? I thought God said everything was very good. And I will tell you, I will describe for you the most popular among Christians, the most popular uh, account of this is that uh, the fall, the entry of sin into the world is, happens because Satan is uh, in the world and entices humans to join him in his rebellion against God. In fact, that's the way the apocryphal book, Wisdom of Solomon, now we would not understand this to be part of scripture, uh, but it is in the apocrypha. Uh, but Wisdom of Solomon says, by the envy of the devil, death entered the world. Those who are allied with him experience it. So in other words, uh, the devil rebelled against God and he turned against God and because he was in the world, he enticed humans to join him in this and it's because of the devil that sin entered the world. And people often go on to build a whole backstory for Satan. They say that he was an angel and that he was God's, uh, one of God's favorite angels and that he led the choirs of angels in heaven and uh, that he rebelled against God and God cast him down to earth and that's how he ended up being in the garden. And there are two Bible passages that people point to to create that backstory for Satan. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 17. I'm not going to read all of those right now. Uh, now, I object to this version of events, and I'll tell you why. I don't think it's biblical. I think it relies on extra-biblical uh, assumptions and material. And uh, I think it completely misrepresents how it is that the fall happened. Notice how differently we read from what I just read in Wisdom of Solomon. Sin uh, and death came through the devil and his envy. What does Paul say in Romans 5.12? Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, so I think the Bible makes it very clear that there was no sin in creation until humans sinned. Now you might say, well, what about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28? Well, I think both of those passages are being misinterpreted. Isaiah 14, if you back up a couple of verses, is a prophecy against the king of Babylon, a human being, not Satan. Satan is never mentioned. In the whole prophecy, he's never mentioned. Ezekiel 28 is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. Again, Satan is never mentioned in the whole prophecy. And uh, it's just popular uh, opinion and repetition through, through the years that have led us to automatically assume we're talking about Satan here. Uh, I would say that the prophets did not prophesy to Satan. 
They prophesied to human beings, and they dealt with human beings, the message of God to humans that had to do with what God was doing in their world and their lives. Uh, So I think it's just a complete misunderstanding of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. What do I make of Satan then? I think one of our biggest problems with understanding this is that we tend to think that Satan is like us. We want to treat him like he's one of us. Let me point out some key differences. First of all, uh, Satan does not have a body. As far as we know, his influence is spiritual, intellectual, uh, but not physical. He doesn't walk around in a body. There may be occasions where he presents a certain appearance, but it's all fake. He's not an embodied being. That alone should let you know he's very different from us. Um, Another difference is, uh, if we do think that he's like us and that he was created with the option to sin and send, why is he still alive? We all died. But apparently, he does not die. Uh, So already there are two key ways in which he's absolutely different from us. So uh, don't fall into the mistake of thinking of him as though he's kind of like us. Uh, He really isn't. So what do I think Satan is? And how is his presence in the garden a good thing? I think what this has to do is God intended to give us a genuine choice to make. So he gave us a prohibition. And he wanted to ensure that we had a genuine chance to make a decision whether we were going to believe and trust him or not. Now, the only way that could happen is if God created or introduced someone to argue the opposite point. I think uh, the serpent represents that someone. God places someone uh, with the capacity, some limited reasoning capacity, the ability to argue the opposite of what God has said. But this does not constitute evil because this is not a being created to make any choices. This is a being created simply to argue a point for humans. I think of him more like an AI. If I were a software engineer and I created a a program and I wanted to test the security of that program, I might write another program to attack it and to try to find weaknesses in it, right? That doesn't mean either of those things are sentient beings. They're just things created with a function. And in that sense, they're neither evil nor good. They're just there. And I think that's why the presence of the serpent in the garden does not constitute the presence of evil. Uh, I think he was securing a true choice for the first humans. Okay, and if you've never heard that before, you're probably reeling right now. Just ponder it, chew on it, and feel free to say Randall is absolutely wrong. You can, you can do that. Um, but I will, I will strongly argue that the Bible traces the entry of sin into creation to humans, nobody else. It's our problem. It's not somebody else's problem. It isn't that there was an angelic rebellion and we got caught up in it. The Bible turns it the other way around. We are the ones who rebelled against God, and then other things were brought into it. Anyway, and we'll talk more about that in the next message. So let's get to this uh, conversation. 
Finish ver- finishing verse 1 now. And he said, this is the serpent, and he said to the woman, did God really say you, may, you all may not eat from any tree in the garden? You'll notice in my translation here I've made sure I could have put y'all uh, because we here do have the plural second person in Texas. We have y'all. But uh, I figured it would sound too informal. But I wanted to make sure you understood that the you in these verses is plural. It's not singular. Yous. Uh, did God really say, so the serpent is addressing this not just to the individual woman he's talking to, but to the human race as a whole. Did God really say, none of you can eat from any of the trees in the garden? This is the first deception, the first attempt to counter what God has said. And the first deception is to uh, overstate the prohibition. God said there's one tree. You can eat from every single tree in the garden. There's just one tree that'll kill you. So don't eat that one. And what the serpent says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? You poor people. I want to tell you that lie is alive and well today. One of the most common misrepresentations of biblical teaching is to say, God doesn't want you to do anything. If it's good or fun, God doesn't want you to do it. If it's enjoyable, if it's pleasant, if you, uh, it's the kind of thing you would want to do, God doesn't want you to do any of that. Because God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. It's an absolute lie. And it's a complete misrepresentation of the truth, but it still remains a very popular idea. There are many people who want nothing to do with God or His instruction because they're convinced that if they ever submit to God, that is the last day in their life they will have any fun. So here's the first lie. The woman responds. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but regarding the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve corrects him and says, No, that's not what God said. But I want you to notice that in her description of God's instructions, she misquotes God couple of differences. First of all, she added to it. God only said don't eat it. She adds that he said don't touch it. You shall not eat from it, nor shall you touch it. God never said anything about touching it. But she has kind of uh, expanded upon it. And she also misrepresented God's description of the consequences of eating from it. Lest you die. God didn't say just in case or maybe or who knows, but it's possible that you could die. No, he says you will certainly die. You will absolutely die. And the convention in the Hebrew for saying that is to kind of repeat the verb. You, dying, you will die. And that's the, the Hebrew way of just saying, take it, you can take this one to the bank. It's going to happen. You will certainly, absolutely die. That's not the way she quotes it. And already we can sense a distancing in her heart from God. Maybe it's not as bad as God said. 
And maybe the serpent's right. Maybe he, God's being too restrictive. She's expanding on the restrictions and lessening the consequence. And the serpent said to the woman, you all will surely not die. Notice that the serpent did not misquote God. He just said the opposite. But he, God said, you will certainly die. He says, you will certainly not die. So he knows there's a certainty to God's commandment here. He just says God's lying to you. Why? For God knows that on the day you all eat from it, you all will have both eyes opened and you all will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the second lie. The second misrepresentation. Is that the reason God forbids things is something other than your good. He's afraid of you. He's trying to keep something good from you. He just wants it for himself. God is not good. He is not trustworthy. And you should mistrust God because he doesn't have your best interest at heart. In fact, if you would have the courage to stand up to him and to disobey him and do your own thing, then guess what? You get to be God. And you don't answer to anybody. You will be like God. Your eyes, both eyes open in the, in the Hebrew, there's a, a way to convey the idea of, of two of something. And that's, that's the way. You will have uh, the two eyes opened. Uh, both eyes fully open. And you will all be like God. Knowing good and evil. I would suggest that this deception remains in vogue today. People will tell you, you can't trust God. He doesn't want what's best for you. You have a much better idea of what you need than God does. And in fact, your life will be so much better if instead of trusting God, you trust yourself. Because then you get to be God. And you can even say and convince yourself, God's dead, he's not even around. I get to do whatever I want. Never mind that that also means you have no meaning and no chance at eternity. But people will gladly give that up, especially when they're young and feel like they're going to live forever. Which, by the way, you're not. But this, this idea that somehow God is not worthy of our trust is very popular. What we have here is a very true representation. When God created the first humans, and there's something no anthropologist has been able to explain. All of a sudden, we go from monkeys or animals to people who have a soul. People who ponder the question of who is God, who am I, why am I even here? There's no other creature in creation that does that. Something extraordinary happened some point in, in the history of the world, and all of a sudden there were no humans, and all of a sudden there were. And how that happened is a mystery of God's creating activity. 
I don't think any scientist is ever going to be able to explain that because how would you? But all of a sudden we have humans where there weren't any before. And nothing else has turned into anything comparable. But these uh, humans uh, have this choice to make. And God secures a real choice to be made. And the first humans face the choice, will we trust God and live? Will we turn away from him and die? We all know the choice they made. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We read this and we know exactly what we're talking about because we've all done the same thing. You know the thing you're not supposed to do and the more you look at it, the more you convince yourself, man, but it'd be so good. It would be such a good thing to do this. I would enjoy it so much. It would make my life so much better, especially if it's something we've never done. We think, wow, that will give me this secret knowledge I've been craving of something, that experience. I always wondered what it would be like. We know exactly what's being described here because we have all lived it ourselves. She looks at the tree. Boy, it looks good. Man, it, it is easy on the eyes. That is one pretty piece of fruit. But more than that, she ponders, what would I gain from eating it? And notice how she has interpreted the serpent's words. The serpent said nothing about wisdom. But she says, you know, if I eat this, the serpent said I would come to be like God, knowing good and evil. I would become as wise as God. My insight would equal his. My capacity to make the right decision and to know fully and understand fully everything. It would open, it would unlock it all for me. So she took the fruit and ate. Here's the great, profound Painful irony. Everything the serpent said they had to eat the fruit to get, God had already given to them. You'll be like God. How did God create them? In his image and likeness. They were already like God. And the, the idea, you will acquire a knowledge of good and evil that only God has and that you do not have. That also was false. They already had God's knowledge of good and evil. God told them what constituted evil and exactly what would happen if they did it. Everything God knew about evil, they knew. When they ate from the fruit, they came to know evil in a way God does not know evil. Because God has never practiced evil. He has never experienced evil. Even when he came and became a man and lived a full human life here on earth, he did it sinlessly. So the knowledge that they were trying to acquire was a knowledge they already had. Everything they were being promised, they already had. 
And they gave it all up trying to get more. When Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2.14, he says that the woman was deceived, but the man was not. And if Paul's insight is accurate, then we have here two motivations for eating from the tree. Eve does not believe God and thinks that this will make her life better. It will raise her to the status of God. It will increase her knowledge and power in this world and she will become more powerful. We'll see in the next message how ironic that is. Um, but if the man knew that this was a lie, that, that eating from the fruit would result in death and that it would not give them this great knowledge they thought they were going to get. What happens? The minute the woman eats, Adam suddenly has a choice to make. Am I going to stay with my woman or am I going to stay with God? If that's the case, then Adam represents the first case of idolatry, of somebody choosing something to give their highest devotion to something that is not God. And he said, I'd rather die with the woman than remain with God. Sadly, they were both deceived. Verse seven, and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths, the first consequence of sin, the most immediate one. And there's, again, a lot of irony here. All of a sudden, yeah, both their eyes are open. What do they see? Darn, we're naked. Why didn't they see that before? Have you ever noticed that infants don't really care whether they're wearing clothes or not? Have you ever noticed that babies in fact, a lot of times it seems like they would rather not have the diaper on. It's more comfortable. But that doesn't last very long, does it? You see, when we turn from God and uh, introduce this self-centeredness to our living, then suddenly we feel the need to protect ourselves from each other. And the longer we live, the more guarded we become. Because people around us hurt us in so many subtle and, and sometimes subtle, sometimes overt, but so many ways people hurt us. And clothing is just a tangible representation of the reality that I cannot trust those around me. I need something between me and them. I need to hide myself, my true self, and present some kind of a version of myself that is safe for the public sphere. Does that resonate with anyone? Is that not the reality of our human existence? We spend our whole lives using clothing to shield ourselves and to project something about ourselves and to do all this stuff. So the first thing they see is something they never saw before because there was no need for it. Before, their communion was perfect. There was an ease and a seamless communion because neither one of them was hurting the other in any way. Neither one of them had any inclination to harm in any way. 
And there was never even the thought of, I need to protect myself. I need to hide myself. But the minute sin becomes a part of their lives, they immediately feel exposed and feel like, I've got to protect myself. If the man ate because he wanted to preserve his communion with the woman, to his horror, he realizes immediately that that is gone. The first thing sin did to us is it, it broke our relationships with each other, and that is why being a human is so flippin' hard. We hurt each other so many ways, and we're so scared of each other. We live our lives in fear of what people around us think of us. And sin broke that. We were never meant to relate to each other that way. We experience some of the joys of it, and we get glimpses of what it was meant to be. When we come together in harmony and in love and in unity and do things together without uh, cruelty and without uh, ego and, and the way it was meant to be, we experience flashes of that. But Adam and Eve lost it immediately. There's another crucial relationship that's broken by sin. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the breeze of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the face of Yahweh among the trees of the garden. I believe this is anthropomorphic language. God is spirit. Uh, He doesn't walk around. You don't hear him walking. But I think this is a way of conveying to us in a way we can understand the idea that before sin was a reality, God's communion with humans was easy. And his presence was palpable. How different today, right? That people even ponder whether God exists at all. Because we are so separated from him, so distant from him. But back then, there was this easy communion. It's like you could walk with him in the garden. There was intimacy with God. What happens now? They hide. We've been running from him ever since. And the experience, the universal experience, when they come to face to face with the undeniable presence of God is a profound sense of unworthiness. Because we know. We know in the core of our souls, we may spend our whole lives trying to convince ourselves that this isn't the truth, but we know in the core of our souls that God gave us this precious gift of life and the the commission to be his image and likeness in the world, and we have spat on it. We have trampled the gift he gave us. And we are not worthy to even be in his presence. And the most natural response to anyone to the presence of God is at the same time to yearn for it. We were created to be like him and something within us cries out for that and we long for it but at the same moment we shrink back in terror because we know we have sullied it. We know we do not deserve to be near God. That's the immediate reaction. Sin broke our communion with God. So yeah, 
The world is a broken place, and we experience both of these realities. We experience our inability to relate to each other. We experience our inability to commune with God. And the reason is not that God made us this way. The reason is that we chose to walk away from him, and in doing so, broke everything. But we still have the same choice that humans had from the very beginning. We can trust God or not. We can follow his instructions because we understand that he is good. That there's nothing bad about him and that what he wants is always going to be best. Or we can choose to do things our way. Follow our path, our criteria. At some point, we all make the same decision the first humans made. We all turn away from God. We've gone our own way. We've moved away. And sin has robbed us of intimacy with God and of the ability to love the people around us the way we were intended to. Our fear of God, our fear of each other, has twisted us up. We don't know who or what we are anymore. But I'm going to kind of skip ahead. It's going to take us the rest of the year to get to the end of this story of rescue. But let me tell you, God has figured out a way to fix it. What does he require from you? He requires that you turn back to him in trust. The word we use in the Bible is faith. And faith is not simply intellectual belief. It is relational trust. Faith in God is saying, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you are good. And because of that, I want to be what you created me to be. And I'm going to submit myself to you. I want you to take my life and fix what's broken. I want to follow where you lead me. I want to live the way you call me to live. And I want to trust you every day of my life until my dying breath. And I will entrust even the promise of the possibility of eternity to you. I want to ask you today, will you dare to trust God and to entrust your life to Him? We're going to sing a song. This is our time. I believe the Word of God is a conversation. And when God speaks, He's waiting to hear you say something back. That's why at the end of every service, after the message, we have a time for you to respond. And we'll have people here at the front. They're just people like you. But they're here to give you somebody to talk to and just tell them, this is what I feel God's calling me to do and this is what I want to say back to him and they're going to pray with you. That's all they're going to do. I want to challenge you to come to God today and say, God, I want to trust my life to you and I want to see you fix all that's broken. Will you do that? Let's all stand. There'll be people here at the front. Come while we sing.